Welcome to the 51st installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. What roles should our food system play in today's society? Feeding our bellies is one obvious answer. But food systems should go beyond just filling the pantry with cheap commodities. As Ken Meter points out, a sustainable food system should be a healthy source of nourishment as well as a way for communities to build and circulate wealth. Meter is the president of the Crossroads Resource Center in Minneapolis, and he spends a lot of time combing through government statistics and using them to create economic analyses that tell a story. In most cases, the story is a sad one. Meter's research shows that most farming regions are simply a source of cheap, raw commodities. When those commodities are exported out of the area, they take wealth with them. The result is shuttered main streets, eroded farm fields, and a brain drain of young rural residents. His finding food in farm country analyses, as he calls them, also show in stark terms the ultimate irony. Some of the richest farming regions in the world often have very poor access to good food. Just walk into a small town convenience store during harvest season to get a taste of how the food system is working. As raw commodities like corn and soybeans head out of town via truck or train, highly processed food products are brought in, often from thousands of miles away. The good news is that in recent years, Meter's research has been a wake-up call for many local communities. Towns, cities, and counties from throughout the U.S. have invited him to conduct economic analyses and then present the findings to local business leaders, government officials, and the general citizenry. After getting over the initial shock of how much wealth is taking a one-way trip out of town, communities are often prompted into acting on the story Meter tells. The researcher recently presented as part of the Women's Environmental Institute's Organic Farm School Lecture Series. In this first of a three-part podcast, Meter describes a finding food and farm country analysis he did in southeast Minnesota. Many of the trends Meter has documented in that region track closely with the economic situation in other rural areas he studied. If you think about what a food economy should accomplish, because the economy is part of our built environment, it's not something natural forces, it's something we construct. Four of the goals that I can identify are these. It should, it, it should build health for people who eat. It should build some wealth for the people who produce food and who, who are kind of involved in the, in the production process and the distribution process. It should also build connections between neighbors and build capacity so people know how to take care of their food, how to eat safely, how to cook well, how to connect around their food. What we're going to find tonight is that the food systems we have now fail in all four of these counts. They really do not accomplish any of these goals. And if you believe these are the goals of a food system, this is a very simple way to say it, but it's at least saying it's more than money. And so I think, it's a, I think these four goals are enough of a set to kind of say, well, this is a good basic thing we can mostly agree to, and let's see if those things happen with the food system we have. With that background, let's look at the 15-county area of southeast Minnesota that was identified by the Experiment in Rural Cooperation as the place that they are trying to do work to build local capacity. A few basic facts about the region. 77,000 residents who earn $17 billion of income a year. At the start of this conversation, we had some people saying rural America has threatened, it has no income, it doesn't have any resources, and suddenly we have turned that discussion around in a major way of saying people here spend $17 billion a year. How can they spend that in a way that builds a better future for themselves? 
and builds the kind of future their grandchildren deserve. So already we said there's power here, there's some resources to play with, there's some responsibility about moving forward. About 16,000 farms in that 15 county area. Average size is just a little bit under the average for Minnesota, a little bit less than 300 acres. One of the big geographic features, some of you folks know this better than I do, is the karst limestone that really underlays southeast Minnesota, southwest Wisconsin, northeast Iowa, parts of Illinois. This is a very beautiful landscape for tourism. It really makes it a very prime area for, for recreation, but also it's a very fragile landscape because you can see this, this photograph is kind of dark, but you can see some big cracks in this rock. And a lot of those cracks happen down below the ground. And if a pollutant in water enters one of those cracks, it can travel miles in a matter of hours. And that means that any pollution that gets into the water table can travel far and will stay there for a long time. It makes farmers very aware and really have, increasingly having to be aware of how their farming practices might affect that landscape and the water table. One of the aspects of southeast Minnesota that I value is it's a very stable community. This is partly because the farms are still small and the landscape is more textured and people have really settled into a place or a valley and said we want to live here for generations. Um, I tell a story about people I interviewed in this region in 1989 who were, who were complaining because they raised an entire generation of children through high school and still, still considered outsiders from the community because they weren't born there. They had moved in, they'd been there 20 years, made a big contribution, but their house was still called by the previous occupant's name. The good side of that is that once you win that loyalty, once you show that you're an insider, people really hang on to those loyalties for a long, long time, and that really creates some social cohesion. Some rural communities in this country have really lost. And the region's really been forced to become leaders in conservation tillage because the landscape is very fragile and the water is very important. With all these small farms, you could really make the argument, and I think it's a, increasingly as I travel around, I've seen the wisdom of this. This is one of the more diverse farm economies you can find in the country because it still has not only corn and soybeans, but also cattle, uh, pigs, some poultry, um, milk production, a lot of produce production, orchards, people doing on added value processing on the farm. A really big, diverse set of opportunities available economically that this region has retained Many farm regions have really moved to a more industrial model where this is very hard to pull off. Let's kind of look now at the scope of this region. It's actually almost one-fifth of all the farmland in the state of Minnesota is in this one region alone. You can tell that there's more hogs raised and more milk and more corn than this region should have given its proportion of land. This gives you a sense that these are good farmers. They're producing more than, not necessarily more than average, but certainly um, there's more land devoted to these products than in other parts of the state. It's very good fertile soil with good rainfall. Uh, again, more oats, soybeans, cattle than um, you might expect for a region that only has one-fifth of the land mass of farmland in the state. Unfortunately, there's some downside, too. The number of farms selling livestock fell 16% between the two last ag censuses from 1997 to 2002. We have a new farm census that's going to it was compiled last year. It's going to be reported in about a year from now. We'll have some better data, but already you see some really serious decline in the livestock economy in this region. Sales falling 16%, I'm sorry, the sales falling 28%, while the number of farms fell 16%. So fewer farms selling, each farm is selling a little bit more than it was. Milk sales also falling 15%. Some real signs of 
trouble given that we're basically eating more food in urban America. And somehow the farmers here are not well connected to the market that's expanding in the Twin Cities. But two other questions kind of motivated our study at the very beginning of this. We were wondering at the very beginning in 2000 when we started this study how it could be in such a diverse, rich farm economy that the town of Houston could spend two years with no place to buy food. And this seemed like a very curious development. This is a town of 1,500 which once supported five grocery stores. Back when grocery stores were smaller and the economies of scale were different. And one by one those groceries closed and when they got to the last one and it folded, the, the town leaders got together and said, we need to attract some business that will open up a grocery store. And they went to the major chains, and none of them said, there's not enough, they all said, there's not enough money here to, for us to take out to justify putting a store into your community. So what did people in Houston do? They raised $180,000 of their own money to start a food cooperative. And now they have a, a, a store in, on Main Street, Houston. They reasoned that if they didn't have a place to buy food, the whole town would dry up because if you don't come to town to buy food, you're going to go somewhere 20 miles away, 30 miles away. That means you're going to go to other stores 30 miles away. It means you won't see your neighbors on a weekly basis. You won't know what they're going through. You won't share stories. It was a real valuable place of connection as well as an important business, and they needed to have their own store. They had the resources. They just had to realize the potential they had to make that happen. But still, it seemed curious. In the largest farm state, farm country in the, in the world, in the sixth largest farm state in the United States, to have a place where you couldn't buy food. We just, this didn't make sense. We also noticed at the start of the study that there were about 100 small businesses like the ones you might start that were springing up all over trying to produce very high quality produce, very high quality butter, cheese, uh, milk, pr- um, fruit. And we wondered why people would have to take such risks to produce food in the middle of an apparently efficient food economy. And so these questions kind of railed at us as we did the interviews and did this research with the data. Um, another, another reality that I think is really kind of shocking and interesting at the same time, this is the, uh, uh, shows the income levels in the region for, for households. And um, I think the first thing that's kind of important to know is that 15,000 households in this region alone earn less than $10,000 a year. A significant slice of people is really in a very, very low budget. Um, at the poverty level, we have 44,000 residents. And then I actually refer to the school lunch level. I think it's a better measurement because at 185% of the poverty level, if you're a child and your parents are earning that level, you qualify for free and reduced school lunch. And even 185% of poverty is not a livable wage in my book, but it's getting to be kind of on the threshold. 20% of all the residents in this region earn less money than that poverty threshold. One of every five people. And then, so, so now you have a region where food is produced, where one of every five people may have some question about their ability to buy food because of their economic level. And again, it doesn't add up. But also, a lot of the good food activity is really focused on how we build food systems that create access for lower-income people. This is one of the things I think that the... Uh, the mainstream political discussion has really avoided working with very well. But 113,000 people, 20% of population, and at a fairly narrow stretch, but a good healthy base of two, two income families that are you know, providing some economic stability to the region, but it's not the reality for a lot of folks who live here. Okay, with that now, I'm gonna start throwing more charts at you. And um, what I do is I work, work with some data from the Bureau of Economic Analysis, which is a part of the uh, Census Division. 
And uh, they do a really nice job of tallying up the economic activity in each county in the country every year. And they report that about two years late. So in April, April of this year, we got data from 2006, which is the most recent data I can. And um, it tells a really good story about who's making money, who's not, what industries are favored, which ones are having trouble. Uh, I can show data every year since 1969. So I can show 38-year so, so trends now to identify what's happening. I can also take a region, you know, ERC can say, look at 15 counties, and I can look at that economy from some very good, reliable, middle-of-the-road data that helps tell a story of what's happening to farmers in this area. So it's really my, my key tool in doing this work around the U.S. With that in mind, here is the last 38 years of farm production in southeast Minnesota. The orange line shows how much farmers have sold all of their crops and all livestock. This is all 17,000 farmers put into one chart. How much they've brought in selling their products. The maroon line is how much it's cost them to produce those crops and those livestock in the last 38 years. And you see some real rising trends, you know, growth in sales, growth in markets, growth in expenses, some signs of vibrancy, development, and it's, it looks kind of encouraging, except that you also notice that for many years the expenses overran the income, and that over time, if you subtract this maroon line from the orange line, you get this the balance of production costs. And over the last 38 years, it's very steadily gone downhill. So again, number six farm state in the country, arguably the most productive agriculture in the world, and the situation for farmers doesn't look real encouraging at first glance, does it? I think of a special concern is the last several years. This data I, I did up to 2005. The last several years, significant losses in agriculture for all farms in the region, including all those high-tech corn and soybean farms, all those larger hog operations, poultry operations, as well as the small. But this only tells one part of the story because the, the dollar has, has eroded in value in the last 40 years. Actually, the dollar's worth about one-fifth today what it was when this chart was started. And I'd like to pose a slightly different question, which is how hard does a farm family have to work today to earn a dollar compared to what they had to do in 1969? To answer that question, I take the same data and adjust it for inflation. It's the same chart, but adjusted for cost of living increases, it tells a very, very different story, doesn't it? If you look at the maroon line, you notice that the last 20 years, farmers have kept their production costs absolutely level. They're not spending any more in real dollars now than they were in 1979. I think it's what, 1987, sorry. This is a real sign that farmers are extremely good managers because with the price declining the way it was, they would reduce costs even more if they could. They just can't find a way to do it because the, they're, they're working with a technology and a set of expenses that's pretty much fixed at this point. And the market is really systematically not rewarding them for what they produce. In fact, prices peaked in 1979, that's the year I was trying to come up with, and they've been going down steadily ever since then. And if you, if you adjust for inflation, the, the chart actually looks more scary because you see that in 1973 and 74, farmers brought in $1.5 billion of surplus money into their region in 2005 dollars. $1.5 billion of surplus. Imagine what that can do to help pay for taxes for schools or paper for schools who want to give children the means to write, textbooks, or whatever. It's a really big change from those flush days to what we have now, where basically it's been negative with one little bump in 2004, and it bumped up a little bit to just under that level in 2006. Overall, 
Farmers in this region earn $728 million less now than they did in 1969. $720 million less money each year. And in the last 13 years, the region has spent $1.6 billion more producing farm products than it's brought in by selling those products. As much money as it used to make in a single year of farming. Just gone away in 13. So, you know, some big losses which appear to be structural, which are really causing huge flows of money out. It's very actually difficult to get people in Southeast Minnesota to start talking about why are we losing so much money and what do we do about that. It's just such a big number. It's very, it's sort of hard to know where to go once you see this. To say the same thing in words is because some people like words better than charts. Each year, the region's farmers produce about $2.15 billion worth of farm commodities, both crops and livestock, but it costs them $2.27 billion to raise that stuff, and that's an average loss of $120 million each year for all the farms in the region. Rural areas, farming is important to your economy, and you're suffering a big loss every time you turn around. It's a challenge for this region to know how to turn that into a different situation. And this is an average for 13 years from 1993 to 2005. This is not just a one-time problem. So how do farm families survive? Well, they're lucky that they get, they're actually pretty good at making farm-related income. It turns out you can make more money renting out your land than you can by farming it. So a lot of people rent out their land and get some income. Some people do custom combining or other chores for the neighbors and get paid for that. Those farm-related sources of income replace the losses each year. And then there's also another $220 million of federal supports that go to those farmers who are positioned to get federal supports. That is, the people raising commodity crops like corn. The trouble is that on a given year, those may not replace the losses, and it also goes to only some farmers and not to all farmers. And so it, it may look like it's a good deal, but it doesn't really take care of the entire region's economy. Even more important than these, though, most farm families have somebody in the family working an off-farm job where they get their benefits, where they have some other money coming in that is different cycles in the farm economy, and that's really what people what pulls people through. So in a sense, people have to take outside jobs to pay for their habit of farming inside a structure that really is not rewarding what they do. Let's now look at, uh, you asked about crops and livestock. This will give you some sense of the, uh, the, the change in income. This is the orange line from the previous chart, how much farmers sell their products for, broken into their livestock income and their crop income. You notice right away that looking at the green line, crop income is no better now than it was in 1969, really. It's had some ups and downs, but for all the advances in technology, all the new expertise, the new seeds, the new tractors, new combines. Farm income is no better, really, than it was 38 years ago. So the crop income is kind of steady in a, in a way, lots of ups and downs. What's really changed, though, is that the ability of the region to make wealth by raising livestock is dwindling very rapidly. And one, this suggests to me that if you want a strong farm economy, one way to think about that is can we restore the ability of livestock raisers to make wealth by raising healthy animals for a local market. Because this is one of the things that's really changed in the way um, you know, the economics of farming work. Um, from an economic perspective, um, this is the one thing that's really shifting. As livestock production moves away from southeast Minnesota, the sales of livestock move out of Minnesota to bigger feedlots in Colorado or New Mexico as the production gets moved away and the margin for each animal goes down 
this is no longer a lucrative economy for most livestock producers. Now I'm going to show you one more chart. Um, this looks at the maroon line from the last one and breaks up the expenses farmers take on into all the things they spend money on. We don't have to memorize all these numbers. It's way too much to take in, but I wanted to show you a couple things. Yellow line is feed purchases have gone down as the number of livestock has gone down. Purple line, livestock purchases has gone down as the number of livestock has gone down. Red line, labor costs are rising as people need more migrant labor, need uh, have more have fewer kids that they can rely on uh, from their neighborhood to do the farm labor. Falling again as migrants decide it's too dangerous to come here to work. But what's really interesting in this chart is this orange line, which is petroleum products. Farmers understood in the OPEC oil days that they better reduce their amount of oil because that was clearly a key economic dilemma for them. And it's precisely right after the OPEC days that farmers realized they better ramp down their oil use. They did more low, less tillage production or no-till production, better tractors that used energy more effectively, better equipment, fewer passes over the land, whatever. And they have killed their petroleum costs very steady until 2003. This is the secret farmers have had to become better managers of reducing their oil usage. They got the message about that more than any other sector I've noticed in my studies. We are all spending more driving and heating our homes and all that stuff, but farmers really found a way to cut back. Again, it's a sign of how good their management is. But my real reason for showing this chart isn't about where these, uh, what these expenses are. It's to really ask a question which is slightly different, and that is, where are people, where are farmers buying their farm inputs from? How much of that oil is produced in southeast Minnesota? Not very, not very much. How much of the uh, seeds are produced in southeast Minnesota? Year by year, less and less. Uh, how much of the labor comes from southeast Minnesota? Well, quite a bit, but some of that is also shipping money to Mexico or Texas. Um, livestock may or may not be produced in the region. This represents a pretty big flow of money from southeast Minnesota elsewhere. And that's, to me, a very big concern because farmers are farming at a loss by shipping money for their inputs to someone else. I look at that data, I have a little financial modeling tool I use, and I'm estimating that $960 million of farm inputs, and I think this is a conservative estimate, are bought by farmers from outside the region each year running their farms. Now, if you were buying, say, a billion dollars worth of farm inputs and making a billion dollars, five in surplus, you wouldn't be too concerned because you'd say, we get some good value by buying something we can't produce for ourselves and we get some profit on the deal. But when you're spending money outside the region so you can farm at a loss, you have a dilemma. Um, and actually, this is a bigger loss than the farm production losses. So again, how many of those farm inputs could we localize? And this is what organic agriculture is so good at doing, is, is localizing local cycles of life, local input sources, more sustainably produced sources of inputs, which you're going to be learning how to do yourselves. This will be a very key way to bring some wealth back in by having local sources of farm inputs and less, more, more localized trade that requires less, less petroleum to bring stuff in. Now, the third leg of this food economy stool is the people who eat three times a day in the region, and they keep doing this, and that produces a fair amount of economic value, too. So let's look real briefly at the consumption side. As farmers struggle to make a living farming, people in the region buy about $1.3 billion worth of food every year. $1.3 billion. And guess what? 
How much of that's coming from inside the region? Very, very little. Um, I, used to, I used to estimate 60% because I did some studies in 1981 that indicated 60% was of Minnesota food is imported. Lately, I've been hearing on the grapevine it's 90%, so I've gone up to the 90% number because I think that's even way too small. It's probably more like 95, 98%, but let's say 90 just to kind of have a conservative discussion about this. At that rate, about over a billion dollars worth of food that's eaten in the, in the region is coming from outside the region. So now you have farmers farming at a loss while their neighbors buy food from somebody else. And another way this thing doesn't quite add up is the story. In fact, as you may have heard in your own research, the average food item in the Midwest travels about 1,500 miles between the producer and the consumer, which means there's a lot of energy costs embedded in what we eat day to day. It makes us very vulnerable to Middle Eastern and Canadian and Mexican and Venezuelan oil as we survive with our basic needs. Um, so much oil in our food system that 17% of all the energy used in the United States right now is devoted to our food supply in some way or another. 17% of all the, all the energy. And that totals about $140 billion a year that we spend as a country primarily buying oil from abroad and electricity and other energy sources so that we can sustain ourselves with food. It's a real question for the country how long we can sustain that kind of intense use of energy to feed ourselves. So one of the, one of the questions that was first asked me when we started our study was uh, the, the growers I was working with said, you know, half of us think, or some of us think that uh, we have to sell food in Minneapolis because that's where the money is, and some of us think that we, we're really here to raise food for our neighbors. So can you show us what the market looks like in southeast Minnesota? This slide helps answer that question. When I show a $156 million market for meat and poultry and fish and eggs to most farmers, they nod their heads and say, that's a market worth going after somehow. It's not easy how to get there. It's not, it's not easy partly because our infrastructure is all about transporting, transporting food long distances and not having it come back to a local region. The infrastructure is really set up to avoid this thing happening, but it's really worth striving for. $113 million of food and vegetables being bought each year. How much of that could be produced on local farms? We have to start thinking about those, answering that question, and building those connections between growers and eaters. The next two installments in this series will feature Ken Meter's look at our food system on a national basis and some of the actions local communities are taking to return food to farm country. For more information on Ken Meter's work, see www.crcworks.org. That's crcworks.org. The website for the Women's Environmental Institute is www.w-e-i.org. Send your comments and suggestions about this podcast to me, Brian DeVore, at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. You can also call me at 612-729-6294. A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician who provided Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member and you'd like to support us, Go to landstewardshipproject.org to learn how to join LSP. Thanks for listening.